Amen. Well, hello church. If you would open up to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2. We will be in a few different passages and study those thoroughly in a moment. I want to pray again before we get into this. Father, Lord, as Brother Tim just prayed, Lord, we acknowledge we do not need the words of a man, myself, or anyone else, Lord. We need Your words and we need to understand them and we need to obey them. And so, Lord, we pray that You would help us to be men and women in this moment who care only what Your words say. Not traditions, not assumptions, not many other things we might bring into a text. But Holy Spirit, we acknowledge You as the great Teacher that You would teach and illuminate what You have revealed in Your Word. And help me, Lord, uh, to rightly divide it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We started last week uh, a series on parenting, um, about a year-long series. It won't be a a preaching series for a year-long, but uh, we'll have teaching in different platforms over the next year. And we started off by taking a parenting uh, survey, an anonymous survey, to try to feel out what kind of questions uh, are there in the church regarding parenting. And many of those came back to the issue of salvation of children and and issues related to baptism. And so I thought, let's begin this year-long study by just laying a foundation. And so that's what we're doing. We're week two into that on baptism and our children uh, we're calling it covenant or, or Baptist covenantalism in our children. And then this is what we're dealing with today. Why we don't baptize babies. Not controversial at all. Um, let me be really clear. Uh, I can eliminate some controversy just by this clarification. Uh, there are different reasons Catholics baptize babies than Lutherans. There's different reasons Lutherans baptize babies than Presbyterians. Let's be very, very clear about that. They're not all saying the same thing or doing the same thing or meaning the same thing for why they might baptize a baby. What I want to talk about today is primarily just a Reformed Presbyterian view of paedobaptism is what you would call it, infant baptism, and I want to argue against that. Now, why do I pick that one to single out? Well, because we're a Reformed church. And we're covenantal. And they're reformed and covenantal. And so we're very similar, but on the issue of children and baptism, we're very different. And so we need to clarify that difference. And I think this is a good way to learn Scripture, is to to say, what do we not believe? And, And in identifying what we don't believe, we also deepen our convictions on what we do believe. Um, so no, no question about it. This is a polemical sermon. Um, I'm going to be arguing against dear brothers and sisters that we love and have so much in common with um, and, and saying that I think they're wrong on this issue and trying to show that from Scripture, uh, which means I don't just want to proof text passages that Baptists many times like to focus on on these type discussions, just talk about the etymology of the word baptism, 
You know, how is sprinkling, uh, burying, and, and death, and burial, and resurrection? How, how do, I don't want to just uh, do that type of thing, although I think those are significant arguments. Um, I want to come at the passages, and I said this last week, that uh, our, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters would point to, to say, that's why you should baptize your babies. Because of this verse, and this verse, and this verse. And, I want, and our whole series is those verses. And uh, just so everyone's clear that I'm not building a straw man uh, of someone else's belief, because I don't like when people do that to us, and it does happen to us a lot as Baptists, but I don't want to do that to anybody else. And why, how I'll prove I'm not going to do that to, to, uh, to our Presbyterian brothers and sisters is I want to take the Westminster Confession of Faith which is the unified uh, confession of faith by all Reformed Presbyterians. They would point to this uh, as, as a, a unifying document. And in their section on baptism, uh, chapter 4 of that, they say this, not only, these are the ones they baptize, not only those that do actually profess faith and obedience unto Christ, so they want to baptize a new convert, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. The infants of one or more, or one or two believing parents are to be baptized. And, they, and listen to the passages that they quote under that statement. Genesis 17, 7, Galatians 3, 9, Colossians 2, 11 and 12, Acts 2, uh, 38 and 39, Romans 4, 11 and 12, 1 Corinthians 7, 14, Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission, uh, Mark and Luke, uh, Mark chapter 10 and Luke 18. And, and so what I want to say is all those passages I just read, that's our series. We're hitting every single one of those. We're, I'm not trying to avoid any passages that they would put forward for their argument why we should be baptizing children. And, and I, I, I'm tempted to review last week what I said because it's so essential to this whole thing. Um, but, but I don't have time to review all of that. But what I said about the new covenant is massive. Um, it, it really is. Because our Baptist argument is not uh, to take a few passages about immersion and to say that's why we baptize only believers is because you're supposed to immerse them and you don't do that with an infant. And the, the Orthodox Church actually does baptize infants underwater. And historically, even in church history, you can go back and see that they many times did immerse an infant. This, this is not our argument, is, is about immersion. Um, the argument of why we don't baptize infants and only believers has, comes back to the nature of the new covenant. And that's why we studied that last week, because those who are in the new covenant, it says they all know the Lord. They all, uh, he says it causes them, he puts his spirit within them and causes them to walk in his ways. They're all forgiven of sin and they'll all make it to glory. And what I'm saying is, why would you put the covenant, the new covenant sign of baptism on someone who hasn't entered into that covenant by faith? Why would we do that? that? At the very least, that's very confusing uh, to a child who receives that sign of the covenant at infancy. Um, so what I'm saying is there's a, there's a bigger covenantal framework that we're coming at this um, as Baptists. So we agree with, with Presbyterians that we have to start with the idea of covenant. 
Uh, so Calvin and R.C. Sproul and many other Presbyterians would say there's continuity from the old covenant into the new. Um, and we would say, amen, there is continuity. And we would agree um, that people are saved under the old covenant the same way they're saved in the new covenant, by faith in Christ alone. How do we understand that people are saved in the old covenant the same way they're saved in the new covenant? They're just looking forward to Christ. We're looking back at what Christ did. How do we come to that conclusion? Because we all agree on that. Because we read the New Testament and we understand the Old Testament in light of what the New Testament says. That's how we come to that shared conviction. We all read the Bible like that. You understand the old in light of the new. However, what I pointed out last week is on the issue of baptism, many otherwise faithful brothers flip the hermeneutic. What is a hermeneutic? That's your, your, uh, the way you interpret the Bible, the mechanism in which you would seek to interpret the Bible. They'll, they'll switch it and they'll let the old interpret the new rather than the new the old. Something we don't do with any other doctrine. And I know that uh, if, if a Presbyterian were here and were you know, arguing with me about this, they would not like that accusation. But here's what my response would be. Um, the reality is, there are no New Testament passages that say we should baptize infants. None. There are none. They're, they're not there. And Strong's, uh, you know the guy, the guy who wrote the Bible Concordance, the really thick one before they had computers, quite amazing. Um, he said in his systematic theology book, he said, there are no New Testament references that say you should baptize an infant. And then B.B. Warfield, who's a Presbyterian, uh, old Presbyterian pastor and professor at Princeton, the old Princeton uh, seminary, he said, he's right. The New Testament passages give no express command that infants should be baptized, and there's no scripture, scriptural example of the baptism of infants. B.B. Warfield admitting what any honest person who's reading the New Testament has to admit, there is no New Testament text that says it or example of it. And so you go, well, why would someone do it? And I believe, and many have admitted, that there is an assumption based off your commitment to the Old Testament or Old Covenant sign of circumcision that was given to an infant in the Old Covenant, and you're bringing that paradigm into the New Covenant and giving it to the sign of baptism, and therefore giving it to a child at birth, which I argue is reversing the hermeneutic. Because we don't understand the Trinity that way. We don't understand the deity of Christ that way. We don't understand the resurrection that way. Every other Christian doctrine, how, how, are, how, are, things not, how are we not Jews? How are we not all Jews with the Old Testament? How are we Christian? Well, because we have the New Testament that helps us understand and keep the Old Testament and understand it in a Christian way. And I think that many uh, reverse that and read it different when it comes to baptism. Um, our church statement of faith, uh, coming from the New Hampshire Confession, says this. It's on our website. It says, the New Testament apostles are the primary interpretive lens through which the Old Testament must be understood and applied. 
The New Testament apostles are, are the primary interpretive lens in which the Old Testament must be understood and applied. That's why I asked last week um, what I don't think is a very controversial question. Uh, how are our children saved? And then I said, the same way you're saved. By faith in Christ alone. That's not a controversial thing because the New Testament repeatedly tells us that. And so again, if, if a, a dear Presbyterian brother or sister were here who knew these issues and we asked them, why should we baptize our infant? Show us from the New Testament. Um, we don't actually, you know, again, I don't think there is New Testament warrant, but they would point to some passages and there's two in particular that would be pointed to. Um, and I think because these two passages are misunderstood, many baptize their infants. And so I want to take our time this morning looking at these two passages. So the first is Colossians 2.11. Colossians 2.11. Before I read this, let me make sure we understand the argument that uh, I believe Calvin, John Calvin originated, many others have used since the time of the Reformation, that under the Old Covenant, the sign of the covenant was circumcision. It was given to all infant males in Israel. Therefore, under the New Covenant, the covenant sign of baptism is to be given to all infants of believers. That's what they're arguing. And this is the passage. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith. Now if we had time, uh, we'd want to read the whole chapter. Because it, come to find out, context matters when you're trying to understand a verse. The context of this is union with Christ. That's very significant, but we don't have time to read the whole context. But look, just look at the verse. I think we can learn a lot just looking at what the actual verse says. In him you were circumcised without hands. What is a circumcision without hands? Is that the old covenant sign of circumcision? No. A, a circumcision without hands is regeneration. How do we know that? Well, Romans 2.29 says, Circumcision is not outward and physical, but true circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Regeneration. Being born of the Spirit. So I believe Paul's saying here, the fulfillment of circumcision is not baptism, but regeneration. Circumcision of the heart. Now look at what he says about baptism in verse 12. Those who are baptized have been what? Buried and raised with him, how? How do we know someone has been buried and raised with him? By faith. By faith, they're buried and raised. By faith. So we can't just say, okay, there's a verse, and it, and it has the word circumcision, and it has the word baptism. Bam! Connect them. Old covenant sign. Old covenant, or new covenant sign. Connect them we got to look at what the verse actually says. And the verse is not talking about the old covenant sign of circumcision. And then it connects baptism to being something that 
is done by faith. So here's my point. The New Testament doesn't teach that physical circumcision is the precursor to baptism. It doesn't. It doesn't. So we reject that connection completely. That circumcision in the Old Covenant, that sign, is connected to the New Covenant sign of baptism. That is not a biblical connection. And so we reject that completely. So you say, well, what's the precursor to baptism? If it's not circumcision, because there is an Old Testament uh, type or, or pattern of baptism, something's happening incredibly rich regarding baptism in the Old Covenant. And here's what a Reformed Baptist would stay, say historically. We would say the precursor to baptism is the ceremonial cleansings that the priests and the Levites took before the temple service. So as you know, in Exodus and Leviticus, uh, there were these ceremonial washings the Levitical priests would, would receive before they would go into the temple and offer the sacrifices and minister in the temple. Those ceremonial washings and cleansings, sometimes they would even be immersed into water. That is the precursor to baptism. And here's why I make this connection. Because I'm using the hermeneutic we always use, which is, what does the New Testament teach about this? And I believe the New Testament makes the connection that Jesus and John the Baptist connect this to a ceremonial washing. So um, it's interesting Again, many are trying to connect circumcision from the Old Covenant to baptism in the New, and they'll conveniently skip over John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism. Old Testament, New Testament, but then there's Jesus and John the Baptist being baptized. That's conveniently overlooked. And I think that's the central piece that needs to be looked at and often isn't looked at. And, and so I don't bring up John the Baptist just because his name has Baptist in it. You know, um, maybe he's important to the discussion. Uh, his name has Baptist. But that's not why I'm bringing it up. I bring up John the Baptist because he's the last Old Testament prophet. He's like Isaiah. He's like Jeremiah. He's like Ezekiel. He's an Old Testament prophet of Israel. But yet, he's unique because he's also the first New Testament preacher. And he's the New Testament preacher because he's literally in the presence of the Lamb of God who can take away the sins of the world and he's preaching that and going, he's right here in the crowd. That's a unique Old Testament prophet who's able to point Jesus out in a crowd. So look at what it says. Go to Matthew 3, 5. I think these will be on the screen, but you can turn there. Matthew 3, 5. It says this about John the Baptist. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. We have the covenant sign. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. These Pharisees are going, we have the covenant sign. We're children of Abraham. And John the Baptist goes, not if you don't repent. 
And if you don't repent and keep with repentance, I'm not baptizing you. The covenant sign is not what makes you a child of God. And again, I'm not even bringing all this up for that. Here's what I really want us to look at. Verse 13. Jump down to verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by by you. You come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. All the Baptists, we love that one, right? Uh, Went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open. And he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove. Now, here's why I bring this up. I want to ask this basic question. Why was Jesus baptized? By John. Because everybody else coming to John was being baptized for repentance. They're all repenting of their sins and being baptized. So why does Jesus need to be baptized when he doesn't have sin to repent of? And many Baptists, many others, would say, well, he's being an example to us because we should be baptized. Maybe there's some truth in that, but that's not the reason he's being baptized. The main reason Jesus is being baptized is because he is our great high priest and he's receiving his ceremonial washing before he enters his priestly work. That's not insignificant. That he's receiving a ceremonial washing. Not because he's dirty from sin and needs to be cleansed or anything like that. But because he's fulfilling an Old Testament type. That a priest gets cleansed before they do their covenant work. That's what Jesus is doing at his baptism. And it's not insignificant that when we get baptized, after we believe the gospel and been baptized, what are we called? Priests of God. Interesting. Cleansed so much so that our bodies become temples of the Holy Spirit. Now, maybe some think I'm pulling that connection out of nowhere, but here's what I would say to them. Uh, What do you do with John 3.23 that says this? John's baptism, or John was baptizing at Aon near Siloam because water was plentiful there. And people were coming to him being baptized. And then it says this, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So John's baptizing people And then a discussion arises over purification? Interesting. If there's no connection between a baptism of repentance and the Old Testament purification of priests. I think there is. So, we reject physical circumcision as as being fulfilled in infant baptism. Because the New Testament says circumcision of the heart is what matters. And that regeneration is its fulfillment. And we believe the Old Testament precursor to baptism is the priestly ceremonial washings of which Jesus himself received at the beginning of his ministry. Now, I'll point out one more, one more thing here. In John chapter 4, if we moved over one, one chapter, 
This is also interesting what, what's said here. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and then it has a little parentheses, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Now, this is a little interesting phrase, and I bring it up because you've got John the Baptist's disciples that are baptizing disciples, and you've got Jesus' disciples. He's not baptizing, but his disciples are baptizing, and they're baptizing for repentance. Now, and they're doing this for three years. So a lot of people are getting baptized. Now, if that's how baptism is working in Jesus' three-year ministry, and then Jesus stands up in Matthew 28 and says, Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing them. Who's the them? Disciples. What type of baptism are those disciples to be doing? A baptism of infant? Or a sprinkling of infinite, even? No, they would have only understood that as a baptism of a repenting disciple. That's all they had seen in Jesus' three-year ministry, in John the Baptist's three-year ministry. If there was some sort of change in how baptism was to be administered, or to whom it was to be administered, you would think there would be some verse or explanation to explain that change. There's not. And so many of us don't feel that we need to baptize our children. So get my argument that if Jesus and, John and John's disciples are only baptizing repentant sinners who are willingly coming under the lordship of Christ, willingly seeing him as Messiah, they're doing this for three, or for three years, and then Jesus says in, in, in Matthew 28, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, that is those repentant disciples, that's what we need to, to land on. And, and, and nobody will land there and, and really shouldn't because the Bible doesn't stop there. We need to keep reading into Acts, right? And so this, this study has to move into the book of Acts so that we can see how this gets played out in the book of Acts. So we need to go to Acts chapter 2. This is the other passage I want to land us in. How you understand this, Acts 2... Uh, really will determine how you read the rest of the book of Acts. So we need to make sure we get Acts chapter 2 right, or I believe you're going to get other things wrong later on in Acts. But Peter stands up at Pentecost. Uh, the Spirit has already fallen. They're speaking in tongues. Peter stands up and tries to give some explanation. This is the new covenant. The Spirit has fallen. And so he's preaching this in Jerusalem. We'll pick up in, in verse 36. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. So he's preaching to the Jews. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. And those who received his word... That's important. Those who received his word were baptized. And there were out of that day 
about 3,000 souls. Now, the central verse here is verse 38 and 39. Let me just read it again. This promise is for you and your children. The Abrahamic promise. Many would say, Peter's promising that children of believers will be saved. That's Calvin's argument. That's many others' argument. A couple of things I think are being overlooked here. Here's the first. We need to ask, who is Peter actually speaking to? Is he speaking to Christian parents? No, he's speaking to unconverted Jews. He's evangelizing to unconverted Jews who were actually there participating in the death of Christ. And he's saying, repent and be baptized. This promise is for you and your children. Why, why does he say to you and your children? Well, given the context and the fact that these people, a few days earlier, it says in Matthew 27, 25, that they said this when they were talking to Pilate. Remember, they're yelling out to Pilate to crucify Jesus, and they said, his blood be on us and our children. And now Peter's going, that curse that you just brought upon yourself and your children at death, at the death of Christ, God is merciful, not only toward you, but even to your children. He's reversing the curse with this gospel promise. That's significant. Secondly, we need to read the whole verse because many times only half this verse is used. This promise is for you and your children, period. Well, there's no period though. Uh, What does the whole verse say? The whole verse says this promise is for you, your children, and those who were far off, everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. So whatever the promise is that's for Jews and their Jewish children is also for those who are far off. That's the Gentiles. And another category, any who the Lord our God would call to himself, which I think is the elect that are Jews or Gentiles. You say, well, what is the promise? Well, look at the verse right before it, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. And the promise isn't be baptized and then sometime later repent if you're elect. The promise is repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The order matters. We could actually expand this promise into verse 18, which it says that he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I think this is a gospel promise that Peter's giving to Jew or Gentile, to all who are elect, anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord, you're saved. It's the promise. It's not a promise to children of believers that their children will be saved or in the future will be saved. It's not even a promise to believers at all. It's a promise to unconverted Jews on God's willingness to forgive their sin and the sin of their children who would believe. And how you understand that promise affects the way you read the rest of the book of Acts regarding baptism and regarding children. And I want to bring up A few other passages here. I think this is the last slide in Acts. I'm not going to take these uh, 
in depth because you can study them yourself, but I, I, I do want to say a few things about the household baptisms, what are called household baptisms, because these are often brought up. Now, I will, I will point out that the, the Westminster Confession of Faith the, that I read earlier, the Presbyterian Reformed uh, Confession, doesn't include these. Why? Because they're arguments from silence. They know that these are not solid arguments, um, so many Presbyterians would not even uh, use these, but others will, so I'll, I'll bring them up. Um, Acts 10, 46, Cornelius' household. So while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing and speaking in tongues, extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. There it is. Nothing about an infant. Who's baptized? Those who received the Holy Spirit. The Gentiles that received the Holy Spirit just as they did were baptized. Act 16 is significant. Uh, Lydia's household will bring up first. I'm not going to read the whole larger context here, but there's no denying it, and I wouldn't deny it, that everybody in her household is baptized. It says that. After they've heard the word, uh, they're baptized. So here's what I want to point out. Verse 15. She urged us, saying, if you have been judged by me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So why that's significant is because in this day and age, for a woman like Lydia to tell a group of men to come to her house is culturally not normal, right? Something's, and so this has led many uh, scholars, theologians, to conclude there doesn't seem to be a head of a household. She doesn't seem to be married, or maybe she's a widow, right? And she's a seller of purple goods. She's a businesswoman. She, uh, we know through other passages, she travels long distances in business, which also makes us conclude she probably doesn't have young children or infant if she's off traveling all the time and doesn't have a husband. These are, we don't know, but here's what we also don't know. We don't know that there's any infants in her house that would have been baptized. That we don't know. And to argue that it's there is an argument from silence. Um, but again, many would put infants in her household, which the text simply just does not say. Now, later on in chapter 16, uh, the Philippian jailer is also often mentioned. And so if you'll go to verse 30, it says... He brought them out and said, you remember they're arrested, they're in prison, the jailer, uh, there's this earthquake. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, that's key. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. So he's preaching the gospel to everybody in the house. And he took them that same hour in the night and washed their wounds and, and he was baptized at once, he and his whole family, and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before him and he rejoiced along, listen, 
he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So why would the whole house be rejoicing if he believed in God, but they didn't? It, why would your whole house rejoice if just your dad gets saved, but you've rejected the gospel? It, it does seem everyone in the house received the gospel, therefore they're rejoicing that their father is saved, and therefore all of them were baptized. Now, what's interesting also about the Philippian jailer is that he's the first truly pagan Gentile convert. So this would be a parallel to, say, a Hindu man or a Muslim man who gets saved. And so this is very significant for modern day. Uh, he's the first example we have of a man, of a, of a man who gets saved, and then the, we, look, we need to understand what to do with the rest of his household. And so I bring this up because some argue from Acts 16 that when, he, when the head of the home is saved, all the children become believers. That's the argument from many. You get the head of the home saved, everyone else becomes a believer. And one thing that needs to be remembered, I think, is an argument from experience, kind of an existential argument, I guess you could call it. Um, what do you do with like, you know, back... 16 years ago, I was in Malaysia and I was talking to a, a Muslim man who didn't want to convert to Christianity because he knew his family would reject it and he had already talked to them about Christ and none of them wanted Christ. And so he knew it would, it would exclude him and separate him and cause division in his family if he were to receive Christ. What do we do with the Muslim countries, Hindu cultures, where... Many times we see men be converted and their household is not. Their household does not want the gospel. They do not want to be baptized. They do not want to be persecuted by everybody else in the culture. And they don't follow the example of, their, of the head of the home. What do we do with that? Because in the old covenant, you would give the covenant sign to every male, whether he wanted it or not, every infant male. What do you do when you have a man in Malaysia, let's say, who gets converted and he loves Jesus and he's willing to be persecuted and he's willing to be baptized for that, but his 13-year-old daughter goes, I don't want to be baptized. And his 17-year-old son says, I don't want anything to do with that. Do you, do you baptize them against their will? So... These are things that need to be understood. And here's the most significant theological thing. What do we do with Christ's repeated comments about how he divides families? Luke 12, 52. From now on in one house, there will be five divided and three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son. Father against son. And son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Guys, Paul talks about spiritual children. Jesus says, who is my mother and brothers? It's the one who does the will of the Father. The spiritual family in the new covenant is spiritual. It's not just of blood. This is a major difference between the old and new covenant. Even Isaiah 53, Isaiah prophesying about the new covenant, he said that the Messiah will see his offspring. Does Jesus have offspring? 
He was never married. It's spiritual. These are believers who enter into the family by faith, not by covenant sign at infancy. The new covenant is not like the old covenant. Now, let me say this, because I do think this is a fair criticism against Baptists. We should humble ourselves, receive it, learn from it, because of these household baptism passages. Uh, there is criticism against Baptists that we're, we too individualize evangelism. And I think that's a fair criticism when you read Acts and you see these household baptisms. Because when I read this, I'm like, man, that, that, that changes how I need to be thinking about evangelism. When I go preach to a man, should I just talk to him or should I say, can you go get your wife and your kids? They all need to hear this. That's how these apostles are preaching. I, I was in the airplane last week coming back from Brazil, and <laughs> I had not spoken English barely to, except to my family for a month. So I find, a, I find an American, and, uh, and he starts talking to me, and I realize we speak English, so I'm like, all right, man, you're not going anywhere for a while, like we're going to talk. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so I find out he's a, uh, he's a Mormon, and he lives in Utah, and he's lived in that culture his whole life. And... Um, and he was a Mormon missionary as well. So anyway, we, we begin to talk. And as I begin to press him on who, who is Jesus Christ, I, I said this to him. I looked down at his wife, his precious wife who was a Brazilian, and his kids, and said, what you believe about Jesus directly affects your wife and your kids. I wasn't saying that they'll all be saved if he's saved. I was saying if this man bows the knee to Christ, the real Christ, the, the biblical Christ, he's going to go to a, a gospel preaching church. His wife will hear the gospel. His kids will be raised in the context of, of the true Christ, not a false cult Christ. And so I pressed him, not just for his own soul's sake, but for the sake of his wife and his kids. And that lands heavy on a man. You press a man like that, he's thinking about that a little bit more than he would have if he was just thinking about himself. And that's how the apostles are preaching. So I think that's a legitimate pushback. Let's think about that. And even not even just a man, the head of a, a home that's a woman, a single mother, Lydia. What do they do? They want to speak to the whole household because they know how influential the head of a household is. So I, I would say pray for my friend. I won't name his name here. Um, but he's been texting me um, and asking for scriptures. And he's about to read his first Christian book that isn't Mormon. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful about, about this man. Um, let me just close saying this. We need to be honest that even though we say we're people of this book, we always aren't. And we, we like many times without realizing it. Again, this is without realizing it. We bring in other emotional reasons why we take the views we take. We love our kids. We want assurance that they will be with the Lord. It's very understandable how you would want to do something to hopefully grasp on to more assurance that they'll be with the Lord, I would just encourage anyone, no matter where you land on this, study the Scriptures. If you end up differing from this church on where you land, 
then you differ where you land. But let it be because of the Bible. Let it be because of, of the Bible. And let me just say to the kids here, uh, to, to the children, this promise is for you and your children. I, I, I hope you understand all, all of the kids here. Christianity is not just for your parents. And the hope of the gospel is not just for your parents. You need forgiveness of sins. You need the Holy Spirit. And God offers it to you. He said the the promise is for you and your children. Any to whom the Lord our God would call to himself. So children, talk to your parents about these things. Think about the fact that God will be merciful to you if you will call upon him and ask him for his grace in your life. Amen. Let's go to the Lord, church. Father, we thank you for promises that it does not get better than the promise of forgiveness of sin. The promise of your Holy Spirit who is a seal for the day of redemption. Lord, we don't deserve these type promises. Nothing we've done makes us people who should be able to just receive Your grace and Your mercy and Your forgiveness because we believe upon You. Because we ask. But yet, You promise. And so, Father, I pray there wouldn't be one person, Lord, here who would not avail themselves of this promise that Peter gave. Lord, and that, Father, help us in our evangelism and as we minister the Gospel to invite all members of the family to Christ. And Lord, we pray that we would see whole households baptized and saved because they've received Your Son. Lord, we believe Your Spirit can do it. You have done it. And we give You all praise for how you're at work in this church and husbands, wives, children. And we pray you'd continue for your name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.